Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman. And today, we feature a conversation with author, speaker, and blogger, Jen Baxter. In 2015, Jen launched her website, Live a Fast Life, based on her own experiences with clean living and downsizing into a 160-square-foot tiny house. Jen also has a buyer beware story to share about her house, so if you're thinking about hiring a builder, definitely pay attention. Jen now teaches others how to make similar changes in their own lives through her online webinars and her e-course collection. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. And I feel like we have so much to cover today because I really want to talk about decluttering and downsizing. Yes. Um, But first, I'd like to ask you about your experience with your tiny house. Can you tell us that story? Sure. I will try and tell you the Reader's Digest version of it. Okay. So um, I actually was planning my house back in 2014. So that was kind of when tiny houses were just sort of, you know, getting big on the scene and there weren't a whole lot of builders to choose from back then. And, you know, everybody that was out there was still kind of a beginner. And I had a very small budget. Uh, My budget was only about 30,000. So after I did a bunch of research, I ended up coming up with this builder who was a brand new builder. He had actually only ever built one house before mine and he used it as a model home. And I knew that I was taking, you know, a certain amount of risk going with a brand new builder, but I figured it was going to work out for both of us because he was willing to work with my smaller budget And then I had been accepted to be on um, Tiny House Big Living on HGTV. So I thought, here, I'm bringing this new up-and-coming builder, all this publicity and all this attention. And so this is going to work out great for both of us. So, you know, we did a lot of back and forth. He was in Raleigh. I was in Charlotte. So we did a lot of, like, emails and phone calls. And, you know, we really felt like we clicked over the phone. Um, We even had sort of bonded over our faith. He said he was praying for the first the right first customer. And I was like, Oh, that's awesome. Cause I was praying for the right builder. And, you know, I just thought this was like divinely arranged. So we moved forward and took about three months. It started in, I think it was the end of February of 2015, took about three months for it to be built. And, you know, the TV show filmed the whole thing. And I moved into it in June of 2015. And Unfortunately, you know, at the end of the TV show, they always make it look like everything is sunshine and rainbows and ponies, and it wasn't the case. And when I actually moved into it, um, it just started kind of falling apart around me, literally. And like every time it would rain, all this dirty water would pour in, and um, cabinet doors were coming off in my hand. The um, gray water system was done wrong. The electric panel was done wrong. It was just, it was literally just one thing after the other. So I had tried to go back and forth with him for probably about three months and he was kind of taking a very blasé approach to it and he had gone out of the country and he was just kind of sending these random like handyman people that he was finding online just to come and do these little fixes. And so eventually I just felt like, okay, he's not taking this seriously and I'm going to have to do something drastic. So um, Jewel Pearson, who some of you may know as Miss Gypsy Soul, she also lives in Charlotte. So she very kindly sort of lent me her people and her builder and her plumber and her electrician came over and they kind of did a walk around 
they made a huge list of things that were wrong, like things I didn't even know were wrong. And we um, had a lawyer draft up a letter. And basically, we just gave him two choices. We said, you can fix everything in this house at your expense, you know, everything on this list. Or you can come pick up the house and give me my money back. And he actually answered quite quickly. And he chose the latter option. And he said, I'm going to come get the house. Wow. So <laughs> he came and picked it up. And he gave me my money back, which I know was a huge blessing because I know there's lots of people out there that have horror stories where they lose both their money and they still don't have a house. So I know I was definitely very blessed to get my money back. Um, but so that happened in October of 2015. So I've kind of just been taking a little break since then. Um, I've been living as a full-time nomad actually since then. I don't really live anywhere permanently. I just travel full-time and I'm in the process right now of just starting to sort of plan out my next um, tiny house on wheels. But it also gave me this passion to go around to tiny house festivals and do um, speeches and do webinars and things like that, just to kind of give people a couple of tips on how to not end up in the same place that I did. So what do you what do you tell people? How how do we not end up in the same place that you did? Um, I think a huge thing, especially for women is don't be afraid to speak up because I, I kept having this weird thought that I just kept thinking I didn't want to be that customer, like quote unquote, that customer. And I didn't want to be a pain and I didn't want to bother him. So I just held back and I didn't really speak up very much. And of course, now looking back, I'm thinking that was the complete wrong thing to do because I was employing him to build my house. And I was, you know, this was my life savings I was giving him and this was my home. So I really had no reason to be afraid to speak up. But, you know, for whatever reason, we tend to do that sometimes. So for sure, I always tell people, you know, make sure that you speak up, make sure that you're very aware of what's going on during the building process. Even though I was about three and a half hours away, I still would hear things from him. He would email me and say, oh, I miscalculated and I have to make your couch a foot shorter than it was supposed to be. These are like big things, but yet I was just letting them go. Even though I, in my mind, I was thinking, well, that sucks. Like I don't, I don't want my couch to be a foot shorter, but I just would kind of let these things go instead of speaking up. So that's for sure um, a big thing. So if you see, if you see something that doesn't seem right to you, don't just assume that your builder has got it under control. Bring it up. Right. Yes. And assume is definitely the key word because the way I used to explain it to people was I would say, well, you know, if I was going to the dentist to get my teeth worked on, I didn't feel like I had to educate myself first on dental care before I went to the dentist. I just assumed that the dentist knew how to do his job and I would just go to the dentist. And so when I was choosing a builder, I was also dealing with some pretty severe health issues at the time. So I was very upfront with him and I said, you know, I have to concentrate on, on my health right now. I don't have time to be learning construction and learning to build a house. But I just assumed that he already knew what to do and that he knew what he was doing. And that was that was where I ran into trouble because I assumed things that weren't true. And he actually, like I said, he had built a house before mine. And it was he uses it as a model home or he used to use it as a model home. But I realized that the problem came in that when I went to see the model home, it was just sitting like on display in a field. So nobody was living in it. It wasn't hooked up to anything. And that was when the problems came in. So like a mm. aesthetically, it looked very nice and he had good design skills and everything was laid out very nice. But 
when it came to functionality and the actual like electric and and plumbing and all those things that of course he didn't have to hook it up to when it was sitting out in this field that was where all the problems happened so again just kind of being very mindful of those things and of course with him since I was his first builder I couldn't really check references but I do strongly strongly recommend for other people to you know ask for recommendations ask for previous customers that they've worked with, you know, get their contact information, reach out to them. If you can't, for some reason, get former customers, see if you can reach out to maybe some of the suppliers that they work with, or, you know, even banks that they work with just to kind of get an idea of what their character is like and, you know, how responsible they are and how dependable they are, because that's going to give you at least an idea of how they behave and how they take care of things. So, you know, and even now that it's four years later, things are really changing now. So, you know, you might even be able to check with like the Better Business Bureau or other consumer protection agencies, but just kind of doing that background research, because I know I was just so excited for the house and so gung ho that I just sort of skipped all that. And I just thought, oh, well, he understands my design that I want and he can work with my budget. So he sounds great. But like I kind of skipped over all the other stuff. It's easy to forget that a tiny house is complicated. It's got so many systems that all need to be kind of shoehorned in and work together. And, you know, just because it's a small house doesn't mean that it's a small project. So you, you really do want a builder who can do all those things and not everyone can. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. And cause I mean, it is still a house. It's just on a, a smaller footprint. And I think, you know, I do tell people all the time that I don't think my builder had malicious intent. I don't think he was like out to scam me or anything like that. I literally just think he even got in over his head and he thought, hey, I could do this. I could build this. And then once he got in there and realized, oh, there's a lot of systems involved here and there's a lot of things that I don't know about, then he was already too far into it. So I really think, and you know, after, after it happened and after he took the house back, I did unfortunately see where he was trying to sell it again on Facebook. So that wasn't, that wasn't the best thing, but you know, all of my friends in the tiny house world, even if I hadn't seen the post yet when they did, they would just like pounce on it and and put comments on there and, you know, say this house has issues. But other than him doing that, I do think that he learned his lesson. He actually wrote me a very nice apology letter. And as far as I know, I don't think he's even building anymore. I, his website doesn't come up anymore. So, and again, like I, you know, I tell people all the time, this was four years ago. So things have definitely improved since then. And, you know, you have a a much bigger selection out there of builders that are quality builders that actually know what they're doing. Yeah. And so you, you go to a lot of tiny house festivals and events. And so now you, You've gone from the from the ridiculous to the sublime. You know, at the time, only having very limited choices. Now there are so many builders, and I'm curious if you have a builder or two that you know are favorites of yours. I do, um, for sure. I'm a huge fan of Tiny House Chattanooga. I love his designs. I love how creative he is with using the space and you know, incorporating a lot of storage. And so that's probably the person that I hope that I will go with for my next house. But I'm also a big fan of Perch and Nest as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Their houses are gorgeous as well. So those are probably my two favorite, I think, as of right now. But I feel like every time I go to the festival, I like learn about somebody new and I see some cool new thing that somebody's doing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. 
just when you think you can't like be surprised by a tiny house or you feel like you've seen every clever little design thing, you go to a tiny house festival and see 10. Right. Mm-hmm. Did the tiny house experience kind of set you on the path of downsizing and decluttering? Or is that something that you were already interested in before you went for a tiny house? Um, it was pretty much the tiny house that, that pushed me in that direction. I, it's a long story behind like my life's journey, but that's kind of what live a fast life is about. And the short version is just that I had gone through a couple of really serious traumatic things just back to back in my life. I had been in an abusive relationship. Um, my father passed away, my mother passed away and it was just a lot of stress just back to back. And I ended up with advanced adrenal fatigue. So my body was just shutting down on me and I had sort of reached this point where I was just like emotionally spent and physically spent and I knew something needed to change. And I was actually pet sitting for somebody at their house and was just flipping through Netflix. And I found this documentary called tiny. And I, at the time had no clue about tiny houses, didn't even know they existed. And I just thought, Oh, this sounds interesting. And I watched it. And literally by the end of the 90 minutes, I was just like, this is what I have to do because I had never really been somebody that was very big on like designer labels or, you know, having the latest iPhone or anything like that. And so for me, it just made sense that I had this very small, modest amount of money that my mom had left me. And I thought, well, I could use that same amount of money and put it as like a down payment on a condo or a townhouse, or I could use the same and actually own a tiny house outright. Own it outright. Yes. And be mortgage free and rent free. And, you know, that just was so appealing to me. And then the part about having to downsize my belongings to get into the 160 square feet just was kind of like a bonus for me, actually. I mean, I know it's probably stressful for some people, but I think I was just at this point in my life where I was like ready for a fresh start and just ready to get rid of all the old stuff and start new. So it was it was actually very liberating, I feel like, and very freeing to just get rid of a bunch of stuff that I had been pretty much carrying around for like 30 years of my life. When you get excited about a tiny house, and this is what I always tell people, like while you're saving for your tiny house and planning and you're just chomping at the bit and you can't wait to live in a tiny house, start the downsizing process now because it's hard and it gives you something to focus on and feel like you're working towards something even if your tiny house is only happening on paper. Right. Yeah. And that's what, when I decluttering is like one of my passions. So I teach it in a course online. I do like webinars and I just love, love, love talking about it. And that's one of the first things that I tell people is to figure out what your why is. And, you know, I know it's not like the sexy part of it where like you're actually doing anything. That's just like something that you have to think about. But I always tell people don't skip that first step because that's super important because when you are sitting there for like the eighth hour of going through your books or something like that, having that end picture in your mind is what's going to actually keep you motivated and keep you going because, you know, those days are going to happen and it's not easy to go through all your stuff. And when I was going through my stuff, I would get frustrated or I would get tired, but I would just keep thinking this is this is so I can get into that cute little 160 square foot tiny house on wheels and be rent free and be mortgage free and if I could just concentrate on that, then it helped me to, you know, keep keep pushing through the decluttering part. You know, and I think people think of downsizing as, you know, it's got a bit of a negative 
connotation. And I'm curious what your what's your personal definition or for the purposes of of what you teach? Like what's your definition of downsizing and decluttering? Like what is clutter? What is downsizing? Well, it's funny that you say that about the having like a negative connotation because that is where the whole live a fast life thing came from. Um, cause fast stands for fabulous, abundant, simple, and tiny. And I felt like that people sort of had this impression that when you simplify your life, and especially if you go all the way to tiny, that it means deprivation. And then it means like you're having to deprive yourself of things that you want. And I joke, but it's like, I always tell people, you know, you think that you're going to have to like eat granola three times a day and wear cargo shorts and Birkenstocks all the time. And it's like, that's not at all what it is. And that. I have found that when I simplified my life, that is when it became more fabulous and when it became more abundant. So it really is kind of the opposite and that the more you simplify your life, then the more you actually feel like you're alive and that you start living. So for me, when I tell people, you know, decluttering or downsizing, it's not, you don't follow any certain set of rules. I mean, I'm sure a bunch of people watched my own journey on the HGTV show, but I want people to know like your journey doesn't have to look like my journey. And you know, it's really just about getting rid of whatever the excess is in your life. So that could look completely different from somebody else's life. And, you know, if you did watch my episode, you'll see where my builder had to incorporate this shot glass collection that I had of 150 shot glasses. And, you know, to somebody else that might seem silly or might seem frivolous, like, why does she have to keep all these shot glasses? But to me, that was something that was really important because they each had a memory and it was something I've been doing for you know, decades of my life. And so it was something that I wanted, but, you know, again, somebody else might have been able to just easily get rid of those. So it's just about in your individual situation, getting rid of whatever the excess is that you don't really need or don't really want. And then just stripping down to what's really important to you. Nice. I like that definition. Where do you usually tell people to start? Like if, if they've not attempted any decluttering, like where's a good first place to go? It's funny because I always tell people to start in the closet. <laughs> and I think that's just because it's not intimidating for most people. Like it's an easy place to start and we all have clutter in our closet. Like that's just a given, like it's a black hole where it just clutter just accumulates in there and we don't even realize how much stuff we have in there. So I feel like that's an easy place to start where, you can just start getting rid of some of the low hanging fruit and just, you know, get rid of clothes that you've held on to for way too long or things that are, you know, too small for you or have holes in them or whatever. And that just by doing that, it's going to sort of start that ball rolling and start that feeling that I was talking about where you start to feel empowered and you start to feel excited. And so then once you realize like, oh my gosh, I just pulled, you know, six trash bags full of stuff out of my closet, then you want to keep going. And then you might, you know, start in the bathroom or you might start in the kitchen, but I feel like the closet for some reason is like an easy gateway area to start for decluttering. Right. I think there's a lot of stuff in there for all of us that yes, we just don't actually care about. So it's pretty easy to just let it go. Mm-hmm. How do you approach getting rid of things that maybe have some more sentimental value? Not that you have to get rid of them like, and I'm not suggesting that you should get rid of your shot glasses, but, you know, what about when I get to the box of great grandma's china? Like, I'm going to live in a tiny house. I don't even use this stuff because it's so delicate. It has literally just been in a box at the top of the closet. Like, how do you help people get 
through that kind of stuff. That definitely is the hardest part for sure. And I had, I'm a very sentimental person. So I had probably, I want to say like four or five of those giant Rubbermaid bins that was just full of stuff. Plus I had this big steamer trunk that was also full of mementos and I had to go through all that stuff in order to really narrow it down for my tiny house. And it's, it definitely wasn't easy. And I always tell people that, you know, it's not an easy process when you have to go through that stuff. But I think for me, it, it was actually very healing to do that because as I was going through these physical items, it was bringing up like emotional clutter that I didn't even realize that I had. And it was you know, things that obviously were related to the death of both my parents and things that were related to that relationship I was in. But then it was also stuff that even went back further than that and like went all the way back to my childhood. And I think because I didn't have the luxury of holding on to all that stuff and I had to really face it, it forced me to deal with some of those emotions. And then when you deal with the emotions, then you can get rid of that stuff more easily because that's what's holding you back. It's not, you know, these are literally just physical items. They're literally just plates and cups and books and things, but we have put such an intense emotional value on them that that's what's keeping us from getting rid of them. So I always tell people like, just keep in mind if you're holding on to something, like is the emotion that's making you hold on to it? Is it a positive emotion or is it a negative emotion? Because if you're keeping something because it brings you joy And, you know, it reminds you of good memories and it's something that maybe you want to pass down to your kids. Like, that's totally fine and you should keep those things. But if you're holding on to something out of grief that is just unresolved or out of guilt because you feel like pressured to hold on to something by, you know, your family members, that that is kind of a good indicator of maybe this is something that you don't have to keep. You just have to really work through that emotional stuff first. So, you know, once you can actually do that, then you can really detach that emotion from the object and then you can just see that this is just an object. And that certainly makes it easier then to figure out like what's really important and what's not. And for me, you know, when my mom passed away, when she first passed away, I just wanted to keep absolutely everything that I could that was hers. And I had clothes and I had books and I had, you know, just anything really that I could put my hands on of hers. But then once I actually dealt with the grief and actually let myself really sit in it and really go through it, then I was able to separate it out and be like, oh, well, this is literally just like a random book that my mom owned and I have no interest in reading it so I can get rid of it and I don't need to feel guilty. And then I was able to just focus in on the things that actually really did mean something between the two of us and, you know, just focus on those objects instead. Right. And I think it's a lot of times, at least speaking for myself, it's more just the guilt of like, oh, somebody like shopped for this for me and spent a bunch of (laughs) their money on it or like somebody saved these and gave them to me. And it's just like it's working through the guilt of just being able to let the thing go and feel like it's okay, Right. To let it go, because logically, you know, it's not going to be useful to you. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's the part really, there is no like easy answer to it. You just have to kind of, and again, it's another kind of silly step that I teach people of the process, but it's like, you have to give yourself permission because yes, you have other voices in your head of other people, but when it comes down to it, it's really just you that's, that's standing in between of you and, you know, getting rid of something. So you have to give yourself permission to be like, okay, I'm not going to listen to these voices in my head that are telling me, you know, oh, mom will be mad if I get rid of this or, 
you know, so-and-so spent so much time making this for me and just sort of get past that and realize, okay, but if I'm not using it, then really like what, what good am I doing with it anyway, if it's just sitting here? And, you know, when my father passed away, he had a lot of collectible items and my sister and I really had to kind of take some extra time and take some extra steps to make sure that these things went to good homes because they were, they were truly valuable collectible items. But even in that case, we just knew like, it's going to be better for us to get rid of these things because if we keep them, they're just going to sit in a box and like get dusty and we're never going to look at them. But we thought if we spend a little bit of time and we find out like what this is actually worth and who really would be interested in this, then these are going to go to homes of other people like my dad, you know, other people that truly enjoy collectibles and understand their value. And to me, that was better to have them go somewhere like that than to just like sit around in my house or my sister's house. Right. And then you can almost feel better about what happened to them yeah. because you, you let, allowed them to move forward into a better, a better home where they'd be more appreciated. Exactly. I've always wondered, I actually always have this debate with my wife. She's a fan of like, if we're going to try to declutter the closet, she wants to take everything out of the closet. And I'm like, no way. That is way too chaotic. Let's just like pull things out like one at a time and like decide. What, where do you fall on, on this? <laughs> it's funny. Cause I, I'm such a ridiculously OCD organizing person that I have a system that I use Ooh. and I even talk about it in my book and I call it like the three sweep process because this is just what I did myself, but I feel like it worked so well that I, I like to share it with other people because it is, I feel like, overwhelming if you just dive in with, like, no direction and you just try and do it all at once. So I literally would start at the beginning of my closet and I would go through in one sweep where I just took out, like, everything that was super obvious that needed to go. Like, things that, you know, just were faded and things that had holes in them and things that were, like, way too young for me or too small for me. And that was super easy to go through that one because that was just the stuff that was, like, glaringly obvious. And I would do that all the way from one end of the closet to the other. And then I would just go all the way back to the beginning. And then I would start over the second time. And then that, or I'm sorry, actually the first one was just doing the, the stuff that was like damaged. So anything that had holes or faded or anything like that. Then the second time when I went through, then it was getting rid of the stuff that was too small, too big, too old or too young. Because sometimes we'll hold on to clothes for too long. And sometimes we'll even buy stuff and be like, this is an old lady shirt. Like, why did I buy this? <laughs> so, so the stuff that's too young, too old, too small, too big. Then after you've done those two sweeps, then you can stand back and look at the stuff that's in your closet and you can be like, okay, so this is all stuff that technically is stuff I could save. You know, it all fits me. It's all age appropriate. It's all in good condition. Then is when you need to start going through and just start to you know, decide, okay, well, how long has it been since I've worn this? And I usually tell people if you haven't worn it in six months, mm -hmm. then you can probably go ahead and get rid of it. Sometimes if you live in a climate where there's like a drastic difference between your summer and your winter, people are, you know, will say to me, oh, but I haven't worn it in six months because it's a wool coat and it's, it hasn't been that cold yet. So in that case, maybe a year. But if, if you've been holding on to stuff for a year and you haven't worn it yet, then you need to just get rid of it. And you know, I always tell people, don't listen to that little voice that's going to pop in your head and it's going to say, oh my gosh, I forgot I had this shirt. Like I'll totally wear this shirt because it's not true. That's just 
that's that little nostalgic voice that comes up, but it's like you haven't worn it for a reason. It's, you know, it's been there the whole time, but you just haven't been drawn to it. So get rid of those extra things and then just focus on what you actually enjoy wearing. Yeah. And that that's funny that you said that because so we have pretty limited closet space. So we keep our kind of winter and we live in Vermont where it's quite cold. So like winter stuff goes up into my parents' attic. And, you know, so we do a little bit of offsite storage. And I was kind of unpacking my summer clothes. And there was a couple of shirts there that I was like, I remembered last summer when I unpacked them being like, I should get rid of this. I never wear it. But no, I'll wear it. And then I, but now this time around, unpacking it the second time, now I just know because I didn't wear Mm -hmm. it at all. And it's mm-hmm. like so much easier to to get rid of it when I'm just hundred percent sure, like definitely not gonna wear this. If I if I reminded myself about it and still didn't do it, then it's then they're just it's just toast. Yeah. And I mean that can absolutely work for you too. And I even have told people to do like the little hanger test where you when you're putting your laundry away, hang your clothes back up with the hanger facing the opposite direction. And then, you know, again, go through your normal schedule for like a week or two. And of course you're going to do the laundry again. And then you'll literally be able to see like which things have moved and which things haven't. What did I wear? The hangers are going to be facing one way or the other. So yeah, you'll, you'll actually start to see where it's kind of silly how we wear like the same stuff over and over and over and over, but we all have our favorites and have our little go-tos that we just automatically pull out and then the other stuff just kind of sits in the back of the closet. So one thing that I like to ask all of my guests are um, what are three resources? They could be books or movies or even music, just things that have inspired you on your tiny house journey or in your case, your decluttering and downsizing journey and doesn't have to be tiny house related, just just anything that you'd like to share. Um, Well, for sure, the tiny documentary is one because that literally is what started this whole thing for me. Um, and then Macy Miller of minimotives.com. Mm-hmm. Um, she was kind of my first inspiration because I, you know, read all about her story and I saw her house that she designed and built by herself. And, you know, even just over the last few years, I just think it's super cool that she lives there. Not only her and her, um, I think it's boyfriend. I don't think they're married. And their child, but then they also have a new baby and a Great Dane, and it's all in a tiny house. And now they're traveling the country in a in a tinier house. Yes, something even smaller. Yes, so that's super inspiring to see what she's been able to do. Um, and then just as I've sort of gotten more immersed in the community, I am a huge fan of Alexis and Christian with Tiny House Expedition. So I try to follow, you know, all their blog posts and videos and. They're they're definitely an inspiration for me with the whole traveling tiny house. I would love to do that one day. I don't know if that's going to be the first thing I do. I think I'm probably going to probably park my next one same way I did with the other one. But it's a dream for sure to do what they're doing. Awesome. Well, Jen Baxter, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Jen for your time today. You can find the show notes for this episode at thetinyhouse.net slash Jen. That's thetinyhouse.net slash J-E-N-N. And I need your help. 
If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Your honest reviews help others find the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do using whatever app you prefer to listen to podcasts in. It's free and ensures that you'll never miss an episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. And finally, if you're looking for the ultimate guide to planning your tiny house, check out my comprehensive resource, Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is the guide I wish I had when I built my tiny house and comes in three different packages to help you get a jump start on your tiny house planning. Save hundreds of hours of research and thousands of dollars with Tiny House Decisions. Learn more at thetinyhouse.net slash THD. That's thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Thanks so much and tune in next week for another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.